welcome to episode 450 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup today, Jim Dempsey, who lectures at UC Berkeley School of Law and is a policy advisor at Stanford's uh, Cyber Policy Center, and Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology law and policy at Georgetown and is a fellow at Brookings Institution's Center for Technology Governance. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Let's jump in. It was TikTok's week in Washington. Everybody felt obliged to have a take on TikTok, and the takes were generally not very good for TikTok, although there's a whole movement on the left, as far as I can see, to say, well, I don't much like TikTok, but you know, the, the United States has got this all just wrong. And so we ought to explore that a little. Jim, do you want to take us through it? Well, the sort of headline from last week was the appearance before the House Energy and Commerce Committee of TikTok's Singapore-based CEO. Reviews are that he didn't do a great job but of course, it was a context and a sort of scenario not well suited to tech executives. Anyhow, Mark Zuckerberg and, and others have been through the same drill. Members of don't Congress. You think, don't you think? I, I thought there were 99 ways he could have gotten it wrong. And he hit as few of them as he could, as he could. But yeah, there was I mean, just no way he was going to survive. Well, there, that there's no way, I, exactly. I mean, it, it, members of Congress have taken, you know, outrage and high dudgeon to to new, you know, to, to unparalleled heights. And after all, it it combines two two sources of moral panic, namely China and teenagers doing things online that their parents don't fully understand. So it's a recipe made for a lot of sound and fury. Where it's going to go remains unclear. Do you I, think so? Don't you think the Restrict Act is coming? Well, no, I was, that's where I was about to go. No, no, no. I think that, I mean, the, the, the Restrict Act introduced uh, by Senators uh, Warner and Thune, um, a Senate bill. Fascinating legislation, actually. So, remember, President Trump invoked IEPA, the International Economic Emergency Powers Act, to try to ban transactions with TikTok, including hosting it on the app stores. That was uniformly struck down by the courts because of the so-called Berman Amendment, which says that the president cannot use IEPA if it interferes with the flow of information. Separately, a order was issued under CFIUS, the Defense Production Act uh, provisions, to force divestiture by uh, the parent company ByteDance of TikTok. Remarkable exercise of the CFIUS power. What they were doing was saying that one Chinese company could not buy another Chinese company because the Chinese company being bought, namely Musical.ly, which was at the time the owner of the American version of TikTok, was doing business in the United States and therefore was a US company covered by the CFIUS authority. That's still pending. And for years now, literally years, the Biden administration has been trying to figure out whether to enforce that order and to come up with conditions that would be satisfactory. And so far, they haven't. And so then along, finally, we get to the Restrict Act, which is interesting in many ways, one of which is that it would set up a completely new process, not amend IEPA, not build on top of CFIUS and the Defense Production Act, but to create a third freestanding process for restricting transactions that involve data as well as other ICTs. And what's interesting here, among many other things, I mean, there's a lot of depth to this. The administration, uh, President Biden, when he repealed the Trump IEPA orders, he also launched a review intended to come up with administration policy on controlling data flows. That, Stuart, as far as I know, hasn't produced anything publicly. Not much. No, but he gave it to the Commerce Department, just as the Restrict Act does. And, and the Commerce Department has been working on this. You know, it's like taking somebody who's a third string 
college shortstop and subjecting him to, to nothing but a steady diet of hot drives in the major leagues. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. They, they just, they've got so much to deal with. Well, and are. I think what's happening is now with the Restrict Act, I see Congress saying, well, okay, administration, you had two years plus to figure this out. We're going to grab this. And kudos to Warner and Thune, uh, whether you like the bill or not, they put a lot of effort into it. And then the administration came out and supported it and yeah. said that they, they basically endorsed it. And in a way, it's the administration saying, OK, we couldn't figure this out. Congress, thank you for doing it. Of course, the administration would still have to figure out what to do with the new authority in the case of TikTok. And I do think, Stuart, just one final thought on this. The administration is in a little bit of a hard spot because, of course, they're saying to Europe, stop restricting the flow of data from Europe to the U.S., and yet we want to restrict the flow of data from the U.S. to China. And the, the administration position, continuing cross-administration policy for decades now, has been free flow of information, free flow of data, global e-commerce. And Europe, we've been fighting Europe. You fought your battles with Europeans yep. over that for years. And now suddenly the U.S. is wanting to restrict data flows as well. And... How you square that at a consistent level in terms of where is the consistent policy here? Um, I don't think it's that hard. Yeah, it, it, tell, it, me. It, tell it, me. It's national security in both cases. What the EU is doing is bad for national security, both ours and theirs, by saying, we just don't like having a, an intelligence service that has access to this data, so we're going to try to starve them of European data. And considering how much Europe depends on U.S. intelligence, that's shockingly stupid and obviously hostile to U.S. national security. But by the same token, it, it makes sense for us to say we would just assume that the Chinese did not have the ability to recapitulate in Beijing some of the capabilities that we have by virtue of having data flow through the United States. So we're not going to willingly see yeah, to I, them the capability we have. I, I agree with you on the Europeans' misreading of U.S. law, totally, and on the sort of hypocrisy of the Europeans. I also largely agree with you. But at least superficially, you do have to admit that there is a, a disconnect between the U.S. saying, oh, no, no, all that European data should flow to the U.S., but none of the U.S. data should flow to China. But, uh, Stuart, I think you put your finger on why it is that the U.S. is so concerned about TikTok, because on the face of it, this is just what, you know, Jack Valenti, the Motion Picture Association lobbyist, used to say is just a, one of these periodic fits of morality that Congress gets into from time to time. And the, there's no evidence that's been presented about this really being a, a genuine national security threat. And there have been no classified briefings given to members of Congress that says, we can't talk about this in public, but we know what's going on. So I, I do think you know, you really are forced to rely on something like the precautionary principle and, and back of the precautionary principle, which is they could do it if, 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 if they wanted to and China could force them if they wanted to. Behind that is a sense of what the U.S. agencies know that they're capable of right. and what they might be able to and be willing to do if they had access to information about, you know, half of the population of China. So I, I think that's really the source of the national security concern, and it's nothing more than that. But the place I want to go with this is less where Jim is going with the, the Restrict Act and its application to TikTok. I want to go to the application to companies beyond TikTok, because if, if you have that sort of precautionary principle view about TikTok, there's no reason why you shouldn't have it for any company that has any access to information about U.S. citizens or has any capacity to sort of engage in censorship or propaganda. And that would effectively mean any Chinese company. And, and so the, the long and short of this thing might be effectively a barrier, a trade barrier, an investment barrier that says Chinese companies, to the extent that they get information about the US citizens, and to the extent that they could engage in censorship or propaganda, are not going to be permitted to operate in the United States. Yeah, I, th I think that's almost certainly where we're going with this. In fact, if you if you picked three Chinese companies 
that have done well in the U.S., DJI drones and WeChat <laughs> and TikTok, and said, which one is the biggest worry? TikTok's number three on that list. Yeah, yeah actually, agree. The, the government went after WeChat, as you remember last time, and, and, and lost that case, interestingly enough, not on the, on the IEPA authority, which they can get around by passing this new bill, but on First Amendment grounds. And, and the argument there was, of course, you've got a national security problem here. The court, I don't think, is going to be in the business of challenging that. But they will be in the business of saying whether the remedy is narrowly tailored to the problem. And the court in WeChat said, you know, we've got other readily available alternatives that will probably be just as good at preventing national security risks. The idea they had at the time was keeping the devices away from government employees. But now they've got this entire Project Texas set of possibilities before them. And the court might very well say that's a perfectly good alternative. It, it, it might not be a good thing for the courts in, the, in this country to be second-guessing these national security decisions, but I think that's exactly the kind of review that we're headed for if the administration proceeds down the road of attempting to ban. One other thing on why they need this law at all, CFIUS actually enforced a ban against Grindr several years ago and said, I'm sorry, Chinese owner, you have to sell this to another, another owner. And it took them a year, but they did it. And, and Grindr simply didn't challenge it. And so I do think that there's authority there under CFIUS for the, the government to order a, a change in ownership, a, a, a divestment. The Don't you think that's a, that, that is such an easy solution for the government? Because they say you must sell it. And then the Chinese government says you may not sell it. And then the government says, well, you didn't obey our order. You know, uh, you didn't sell. Uh, uh, we're putting you out of business. All right. And I think, frankly, if, if that were to happen, there's, there's a question about enforcement. I mean, how do you enforce that? If TikTok is not willing to go quietly, how do you make them go? And, and the answer is you, you would give orders to third parties in the, in, the, in the country to not do business with them. But I, I don't think that's a realistic danger. TikTok was kicked out of India. And they didn't say, well, I'm going to go, you know, continue my operation in right. India from Singapore. They just said, okay, 150 million users. They just gave up like that without any attempt to circumvent or avoid by dropping in from outside the country. I think that's what they'll do in the United States, too. They'll exhaust all of their legal opportunities to fight, which will be extensive and, and many and time consuming. And once they and lose... will be really, really good PR inside China really good PR inside China. And once they lose, they'll say, okay, we're, we're a respectable international company. They told us to leave. We'll leave. They still have 130 million users in Europe, although that may change, you know, if the Europeans go in the direction that the U.S. is, is pushing them. But they're not going to be an outlaw company that sort of sets up business in the Bahamas and tries to shoot in like internet gambling stuff that used to be done into the United States. So I do think you would have under CFIUS plenty of reasons, plenty of capacity to force them to leave without passing a new piece of legislation. I think this is d derived not so much from the TikTok circumstance, but from the, uh, the interest in setting up a process that will allow regular and continuing review of, of apps that come from China and from other countries too. We, we might have the same sort of worry about companies from other countries and they're on the list in the Restrict Act as well. So that takes us back to the WeChat First Amendment argument which to my mind is, sure, people who use WeChat, I have a lot of First Amendment interests. WeChat's First Amendment interest in making sure that its Communist Party cadre controls what Americans see and say, you know, on that platform, strikes me as deserving a little less in the way of protection. And for people who want to speak, you could say, well, fine, there's going to be a Chinese language Instagram as there surely will be. I, this is not a market that will go unserved. And it does seem to me that you can easily make the argument that WeChat in particular will be a way in which the Chinese Communist Party line on U.S. actions is injected right into the American voting public via people who mostly speak and write in Chinese. I think you're right. WeChat users have a different, maybe stronger case. And they were the ones who brought the case earlier. And their argument was literally, we have no other alternatives. I mean, it's not as though 
we could then use a different app to reach our friends and family and business associates back in China. This is it. I mean, is, is this an email? That, there's nothing else. And so it did strike me as being a very powerful argument for the users. For the WeChat itself, they do have First Amendment rights, just like any other media company has First Amendment rights. And I mean, to get a sense of the flavor of that, I mean, suppose the government were to say to, oh, I don't know, the New York Times, we don't like your editorial policy. We think it's communist and is really the sort of thing that shouldn't be made available to U.S. readers. And so we want you to sell your newspaper, maybe even sell it to the New York Post. I mean, they're much better from our point of view. I mean, clearly the readers of the New York Times have a First Amendment case in that circumstance, but so does the New York Times. Yeah, I agree with Mark on sort of the First Amendment analysis here, that it's partly the right of the speaker, but it's also partly the right, right of the recipient. And to me, again, going back to what I worry about on the way this TikTok issue has been framed is I do see the influence propaganda set of concerns as being quite distinct from the data flow set of concerns. They have been co-joined since the Trump administration when the initial Trump orders cited both of those without really making it clear how, how they related or how they played out. And I think they should be, in, in terms of my complaint, which is that this sole focus on TikTok right now is distracting us from the effort to come up with a coherent sort of durable policy. And I give Thune and Warner credit for trying to do that with their bill. But one set of policies that deal with the data flows, one set of policies that deal with the propaganda influence in U.S. election concerns. Right now, as I see it, we're not getting close to a coherent policy on either of those. Well, oddly, the Restrict Act may be the best bet. I, you know, from, from TikTok's point of view, it's not a ban but it responds to the movement for a ban. From the point of view of the people who are worried about TikTok, they're worried about it for a lot of reasons which are addressed by the Restrict Act. So it may be that everybody ends up saying, yeah, let's, let's do that and then see how things go. Well, and it could then be years for the administration, any administration, to implement the Restrict Act. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the time frame, I have an argument that I think suggest maybe the administration's better course of action would be to grab the Project Texas conditions as fast as they can, maybe build on them if there's some technical flaw that needs to be responded, and put them in place as fast as you can. I mean, if this really is a national security emergency, you should do something about it now. Instead, if you go down this road of uh, passing a piece of legislation and issuing an order and going to court, your fix is going to be years away. And so if, if you really want to do something productive you should be able to grab those conditions and then move to the higher level of control if you need it. And that might make the First Amendment case a little bit better from their point of view because they tried first to have the less restrictive mechanism in place and then they found through experience that it didn't work. So I, I think just from their own point of view, pass the Restrict Act, put in place the, the process, but grab those conditions now and then go forward on that basis. Yeah, well, look, handing this to the underfunded and understaffed and under-sophisticated Commerce Department is going to be a big problem from the start. It's going to slow everything down. I do think the Restrict Act has always bothered me because it borrows both from IEPA and from CFIUS the idea that what the Commerce Department should be reviewing is transactions that threaten national security. And that makes sense when you're buying a company. Maybe it makes sense when you're issuing an order that says you will not transact with this person, which is what IEPA tends to do. But this is weird. I mean, what transaction is there that TikTok's engaged in? They're selling their product or they're giving their product away. But are, are the Commerce Department supposed to review all of them? Those kinds of transactions in the abstract, they're going to have a little bit of a problem fitting some of these company problems into the Restrict Act. They'll find a way to do it, but it, it it strikes me as a weird place to start for the drafters of that legislation. Okay, let's move on to cloud security. The administration, Mark, has been making a lot of noise about the obligations of cloud providers for cybersecurity 
purposes. And some of that is that they think they ought to have know your customer rules to, to make the, the ecosystem more secure and that they ought to provide more security services as a kind of base level of service to everybody. And now it turns out, I mean, they've, they've said those things that they haven't figured out how they're going to get there except by saying, well, wield the power of procurement. Now it looks like the FTC is going to jump in and do something a little more regulatory. What's the FTC going to do? Yeah, I, I think you're right to point out the administration's concern and it, like the connection to the FTC process. And I, I, I think the FTC, of course, it already has a cybersecurity role. They've been doing information security work for 20 plus years. And, and they really are the only regulatory entity in the government that has a hook onto the cloud computing companies. You've got stuff for banks and financial services companies, the banking security regulations from from Graham and Leach-Bliley. You've got FedRAMP for the providers of service to government agencies. So you've got some stuff on the books, but the only, the only entity that really can get at the major cloud providers, the Microsoft and, and Amazon and, and Google and Oracle, the only one that can get at them is, is the FTC. So they, they put out this, this notice. It's a request for information. It's not regulatory yet. It's the first thing that you do before you begin a regulatory process. And the comments are due by May. 22nd, I think it is. But, but they immediately went to the question of whether the cloud market is workably competitive, right? They're backing into the security issues. Through it's in their area. DNA. They can't help it's it. It's in their DNA. And, uh, and so they raised questions, you know, okay, to the public, are you overly reliant on a small handful of cloud service providers? Well, yeah. What about the, your ability to negotiate contracts? I mean, do you have to you know, take the contract that they're offered, or can you negotiate your own conditions? Not what are they doing to you? Are they, how are they forcing you to stay with them? All those kind yeah. of competition questions that the agency always has to get involved in. And only then does it get to the to the security questions. I, I did not see a, a, a question about how do you feel about the second tier of cloud providers like Alibaba and Tencent. Uh, right. Would you be happier if we found a way to boost their revenue and their competitiveness? See previous discussion, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the Restrict Act does cover cloud computing and would give the government ability to say, no, not, not, not in our country. Uh, and, th and they did focus on some of the security issues. I mean, the, one of the questions was, are you competing on the basis of security? Is that one of the things you're doing? Or do you provide an adequate level of, of, of uh, security as part of the base? service and then they, they you know what, what about notification I mean one of the big complaints has been that that users don't know when there's been a security problem so they ask some questions about about notification where they go with this is hard to tell as I say they've got some experience on imposing requirements on companies and they could if they want to find one of the companies that's not providing good security in their judgment and they could say you're guilty of an unfair a deceptive act or practice by not providing reasonable levels of security. But it's really... Here, here, here's a consent decree to sign up to. They, they normally do that, however, only when there's been a, a huge breach. And then they try to track the breach down to some failure in the security practices. But they do have that authority, and they don't need a special request for information to exercise it. So that's always been there, and I think they just haven't found a case that would be useful for them for them to bring. Yeah. The short version of what you said is when your business model is shooting the wounded, people have to be wounded before you can shoot them. And I do think that is part of the FTC's approach. I want to issue my standard 45-second rant about the FTC. I agree with you. They have enormous authority and enormous discretion about who they use it on and how they use it. But unlike the FCC, which is the other independent regulatory body with real clout, they don't think they need to talk to the administration about the national security implications of what they do at all. Whereas the FCC says, no, we defer on national security to the executive branch. Somebody should write into the Restrict Act that the FTC needs to listen to the security agencies about the security risks of domestic industry and to incorporate those views into their investigations. Yeah, I've heard you with that one before. And I think the FCC actually has some authority to to do that. And even before Congress reaffirmed it a couple of years ago, and they, they do regulate companies. They're not just a 
an enforcement agency that enforces you know, competition or consumer protection law. They regulate the industries. They can't operate without permission from the Federal Communications Commission. So there's plenty of authority for them to say, I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're not worthy of a license. You're a national security risk. The FTC doesn't really have that. And I mean, maybe they should have it. Maybe you should give them more regulatory authority. I actually think you should at some point, but they don't have it right now. So oh, that, but they had the authority to ask some very pointed questions and then to act on those questions and to treat certain things as unfair practices and practices that result in harm to the national security of the United States. Is that really a consumer protection problem? I mean, if, if it's that broad, then they could do environmental regulation or healthcare regulation too. As they would if they thought they could get away with it. They, <laughs> they, did priva- they did privacy with no more authority than they have over national security. They, they can figure that as a, as a consumer protection. The consumers also have an interest in national security. Yeah, but they also have an interest in environmental law, you know, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a stretch. If they tried that and they, they were going to be sued by someone for trying it, I, I think. I, they, I don't, I, is it really, is, is consumer protection a requirement for yes. deciding that somebody has acted in an unfair manner? Yeah, it, it, I mean, unfairness is defined as consumer injury that's unavoidable by, by the consumers themselves. Okay. And, and so, you know, is national security consumer interest? Uh, I don't think so. It's an injury, but I, I, it'd be hard-pressed to create it as a consumer injury. Okay, I promised only 45 seconds on this. We've done two minutes, so I'll stop. Jim, when we weren't talking about TikTok, we were talking about new hallucinatory large language models. What's new in a large language model hallucination? Well, there's, there's actually so much going on here. In fact, obviously, one of my concerns with the development of AI, large language models being the one on the forefront right now, but just the incredible speed with which things are happening. We had ChatGPT released and GPT-4. lot going on. Eugene Volek on the CyberProfs list has been posting the results of some of the experiments he's been doing, both with chat, a GPT, and with the Google product, BARD. And these systems just make things up. Yeah. And they make up citations for what they make up. I know. Which is amazing and disturbing and raises just huge questions about how we're ever going to be able to tell what's true and what's not true. And to me, the concern here is this sort of- Can I stop you there? That strikes me as a complete BS response to this problem. Because if you ask one large language model to give you the citations, and it gives you citations, there is surely another not very bright AI that can tell you, no, that does not exist. Right. But the trouble is, is are people going to bother to do that? How are we going to train people? Are we training people? Are we training our students, young kids? Are we training them in these kinds of skills of being able to? Okay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you on that too because of course we are. We're we're gonna, we're gonna end up creating standardized mechanisms for requiring sources for particular factual statements, and they'll be formatted in a way that you can say, this is a citation in support of this sentence, and then anybody can run, and you can have something running in the background that is simply checking every time one of those citations is put forward. This does not strike me as a hard computer science problem. It's not a hard computer science problem, though. Is it a business problem that people are going to actually incorporate into these systems? And I think it's a legitimate concern that products will be built that do not have that added feature. And well, you know, will and, the competitive and, 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 pressures consumers who use them consumers who use them will be unhappy with the results Um, but i I don't think that's stopped a lot of products from getting very widespread widespread use this strikes me as i you know i I think this whole panic over oh my god it said the wrong thing and i could get it to say even meaner things the, the more i watch the developments there 
that's striking me as just an excuse to impose censorship rules and to empower the people who want to tilt all this stuff to the left. Mm-hmm. And it already is. I mean, there's a study well, out th- today yeah, that says well, 14 study, to 15. Yeah. Right? So f- fascinating study done by a researcher in New Zealand. There are these political orientation tests. He didn't develop the tests. There, there are these pretty widespread used tests of political bias and political leaning, right? There's a political leaning. You, 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 you take the test to see how, how conservative or liberal are you. Yeah, exactly. And chat GPT came up across 14 of the 15 tests as a manifesting a preference for left leaning viewpoints, left libertarian rather than left authoritarian, which is, I guess, some small comfort. We shouldn't really be surprised by that. And, and by the way, sort of... Because if you had to define left, the, the leaning of Silicon Valley, well, what exactly. would you define it as? Well, yeah. exactly. And, you know, I think that I think that liberals such as myself or left-leaning liberals such as myself should not be afraid of this. I think the notion that, you know, we've said for years that the technology carries the bias of the people who develop it and choices are made in the design of the technology and consciously or unconsciously these biases creep in across a range of vectors. And so it should be no surprise really that political orientation also creeps creeps in here. So I think that's of concern and I think that, again, is anybody then going to take their system and then build in the kind of checking systems that you want. Why not? I think, I, you know, if you're, I, I'll tell you right now. If if I'm going to use this as a lawyer, I need that system. I, well, I, I, no, I no, need, but, I need but, all my citations. But you uh, as a uh, lawyer, uh, right? You as a, you as a lawyer, you know, the three of us as lawyers were trained to not trust anything and to get right. to ground exactly. truth and to get to ground <laughs> right. to get to we, ground we, truth. We've, we've been trained by judges who didn't trust anything we said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to, to, to get to that kind of ground truth. But I think there's a broader issues here, Stuart, about sort of how these models are getting implemented and will be ultimately implemented across a wide range of applications where, again, I'm not sure that the kind of innate skepticism that you and I and Mark have been taught is going to apply. I'm going to ask Mark to, to join us, but I just want to make a, a closing point on this. If we acknowledge that the people who are curing and fiddling with these systems are all going to be having left and slightly libertarian leanings and that that's going to be reflected in what they do, why, at least for anybody in the center or the right, would you sign on to a narrative that says we have to do that over and over again because there might be bias someplace in there? Maybe the solution here, which we're seeing, is lots and lots of models. You can use some basic techniques to produce a whole bunch of different, slightly different uh, large language models. Can you imagine if we had said about people writing Windows applications that we want to see what kind of results politically those applications produce. You know, is your is your word application or your word processing application somehow tainted by what somebody decides is bias? So before you release it, you've got to make sure that it doesn't produce, you know, the wrong pronouns or whatever. Instead, we just said, fine, you produce a word processing system. If people don't like it, they won't buy it. I, I think this moral panic over AI bias, which has been paying really bad dividends over the last 10 years is just going to get worse if we let it influence what it's kinds not, of things we Here, Stuart, though, I'm not talking about the bias issues. I'm Again, I'm talking about the fundamental about the lying problem. problem. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mark. My sense is that, Stuart, you're your comparison to a word processing program isn't apt because, of course, one of the things that these new systems produce is content. They produce, in response to a question, they produce new information, new content. And and so, you know, the question of whether it's legitimate, they're not legitimate, accurate, not accurate, biased, not biased. The question of whether it's child porn, I mean, you know, these are all questions that have to do with the fact that it's producing content. And so I think Jim's got a point that this is really an issue that has to be addressed. 
The question is where in, in our legal system does it get addressed? And, and that's a real puzzle. My instinct has always been for these AI issues to treat them as regulated by specific agencies of government that have authority over the industry. So financial services companies regulate the use of a chatbot in financial services and health regulators regulate it in the context of health and so on. And so you, you descend to the level of applications rather than trying to regulate the technology as such. I mean, you know, regression analysis is produce lots of horrible stuff depending on what stuff you put into it, but you can't regulate regression analysis as a thing. You, you regulate it as, as applied, as used. And that's where the regulators have to get their hands into this and make sure that when it needs to be accurate and reliable, it really is. All right, Mark, you also had a an interesting article in Lawfare about Section 230. And of course, I liked it because you quoted me. But the basic thesis, if I read it right, was maybe when we think about Section 230, we ought to go back and just say, as I think was it Justice Alito said, what's wrong with saying that if somebody's got notice that something is illegal, that they have to take it down? Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, this is going back to the Zeron case from 1997, which is when, to the surprise of many people who were around at the time of the passage of Section 230, the court said, oh, even if you know the stuff's illegal, you still don't have to do anything about it. And, and, and so that was a startling development. And that, along with the other part of the Zeron decision, which said anything you do as a publisher is covered, led to the broad uh, interpretation that was exposed in the Gonzalez oral argument, and I think is going to lead Congress to say, you know, that's really too broad. And you already saw the Senate begin a hearing on this topic. I think you're going to see one in the House this week as well, the same committee that uh, was dealing with TikTok is going to deal with the uh, problems of 230 this week. So what should they do? My, my sense is uh, back to the future. You know, Zeron was the wrong direction. Let's see if we can fix that and impose something like knowledge or notice liability. And the two models are DMCA in the United States, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which has a notice and action system, and the European system under the Electronic Commerce Directive, recently updated by DSA to also be a notice and action system. And the idea there is you have a screen before you can be held liable or potentially liable. The question is, did you know? Or was it evident from facts and circumstances that the information was, was uh, illegal, that the conduct was illegal? Did someone send you a perfectly crafted, acceptable notice informing you that it was illegal? Once you are past that screen and you haven't taken the stuff down, you haven't stopped amplifying it or recommending it or whatever you're doing that's the illegal action. If you haven't taken action at that point, then a case against you could proceed. And you can still dismiss it for, you know, failure to state a case. I mean, you know, some of these cases might be so crazy that, that the judge will just dismiss it. And that's still available before you have to go to discovery and everything else. But the immunity provided by Section 230 would be gone at that point. So the problem that people point to here is that once you get a notice like this, you got two choices. You can take it down, in, in which case nothing bad happens to you, or you can leave it up, in which case you're at grave risk of being held liable. And so the temptation is to say, if it's a close call at all, or frankly, if it's just, if it requires more than five minutes of thought, we're taking it down, which means lots and lots of stuff gets taken down. And I will say, I know you said, you, you said, oh, the DMCA hasn't been that bad. It has been a disaster for people who actually say do podcasting. If I included in this podcast an excerpt from an ad that was, that, that was trying to make a point or three seconds of music that would be fair use by any standard. It's coming down because there are automated systems for saying, hey, that's ours and you got to take it down and automated standards systems for saying, hey, I got to notice, let's take it down. And so people know in this business that you just don't do fair use because it won't work. That's in a very narrow context where you've got a few people who have the money to pursue this, and they do, and they will win all the time. I think you're creating incentives for everybody else with money to think of ways in which they can take advantage of that effect. So the notice system for responding to 230 problems is not without serious consequences. Yeah, that, that, that was the argument in Xeron that said, if you go that direction, people will just take down the material without examining the merits of the of the complaint. And I think 
I mean, there are examples under the MCA where that happened a lot more earlier in the, in the period of time when it was set up, where people were testing it. But by and large, the systems have been set up that prevent that, that, kind, of, that kind of abuse. And, and I, I do think you, you can make changes now that, that would go to the question of you know, lawsuits that just don't have any merit. I mean, one of the reasons why the European system hasn't produced a flood of litigation is because they have a system where the winners get to collect the court costs from the losers. And in the United States, each party pays, pays his or her own court costs. You, you can change that in a, in a law that would require a company that, that engages in, in a frivolous lawsuit to pay the, the court costs of the, of the company that... Uh, yeah, but the DMCA so, has that. The DMCA has a provision that says, you know, you can challenge somebody's claim right. that you violated their copyright, and then they get to respond, and, and there's, you know, if, if they've inappropriately used this, they could be subject to penalties. Right. But nobody does that. It doesn't happen often enough. Everybody just surrenders because... That's the easy. That's the course of least resistance. Well, what, what, one of the reasons it, it doesn't happen that much is that it's it's done its work. A lot of people don't bother to send these notices, you know, unless there's really what they think of as an infringement. Do you think uh, so? I know. I, I think they basically have outsourced this to people who say, "I've got an AI engine. It will find the first three notes of every song you have, and it will take them down." And they say, "Okay, that sounds great. You do that." But th think of how YouTube has responded to this. What YouTube has done is to say, okay, we've got this system where we check every song that's uh, uploaded to our system and we compare it against a database provided to us by the rights holders. And if we find one of those, we turn to the rights holders and say, what do you want us to do? You want us to leave it up there and do some advertising and share it with you? Do you want us to take it down? What, what do you want us to do? And, and that system seems to have satisfied the rights holders, and it would probably be adaptable to a new system that would be broader than this. But I mean, look, just to, to put a, a risk-benefit aspect to this thing, I can't pretend that there are no additional risks. Of course there are. You, you create a system like this which encourages the companies to be more careful, and they might be too careful. All you can do is try to balance those risks with the safeguards and procedures designed to minimize them. But I think on the other side of this thing, just leaving the system in place right now the way it is, is allowing too much of the illegal stuff out there, and the companies are simply not incentivized to do much about it. The big case there is Grindr case, right, where Matthew Herrick went to them and said, I'm being harassed and physically endangered, and they literally did nothing. And then they walked into court when he finally went to court and said, 230, we're immune. And, and so it was really a disaster in terms of redress and, and ability of an abused person to get restitution. But that wouldn't be the case under a notice liability system. Herrick's uh, submission of a notice would be enough to allow the court case to proceed. And then maybe Grindr would be able to say, you know, we couldn't have done anything about it, or it wasn't our fault, or it wasn't even our system. All those defenses, which are perfectly reasonable, they'd be able to bring to bear. But they wouldn't just be able to say, it's 2.30, I'm immune. Okay. So Iowa is about to pass. So I, I think they've passed, but it hasn't signed. A privacy bill, it's like number six or seven in the list of state privacy bills that industry seems perfectly happy with. Jim, does this mean we're going to see at least some kind of mild privacy bills sweep the country? Well, I don't know, Stuart. These bills, particularly the, as you say, the Iowa one and before it, the Utah one, were essentially drafted and pushed by industry. They are a weaker version of consumer privacy law. And, and um, the weaker in, in, in the sense, they still have the standard rules for what has to be in your privacy policy, but they don't require companies to do risk assessments or restrict even, the, the, yeah, the, the, and, the, the uses. And, you know, consumer advocates, privacy advocates have been saying now for decades that notice and, and opt out, even for that matter, notice and consent are not the sum and substance of privacy and are a weak substitute for privacy. These bills are heavy on the notice side. They mm -hmm. are, by and large, opt out. And even then, what you can opt out from is limited. For example, the Iowa law, you can opt out from the use of sensitive data in targeted advertising. The right to delete is only the right to delete personal data provided by the consumer to the company, not data that the company 
generates on its own, limitations on sale. Sale is defined narrowly to include an exchange for money, which oh, so giving it away or trading it or, or trading it or engaging in a partnership where it's yeah. it's used, etc. So these are industry sponsored bills. And by the way, I'm not sure industry is getting necessarily what it wants because each of these bills is slightly different. I think people are still having to comply with right. the California law. We did get to the point, obviously, some years ago where we had 50 state breach notice laws that never produced yep. a federal preemptive law. People are living with 50 slightly different state laws. I don't know. One thing, Stuart, that is often overlooked, this Iowa law, like all of the laws before it, Connecticut, Virginia, Utah, and Colorado, also includes a provision saying that the data controller, it's interesting how they all have adopted the European terminology of controller processor, but the, the data controller among its obligations is to adopt reasonable administrative, technical, and physical data security practices to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and accessibility of personal data, and then those flow down to the processor as well. This makes Iowa not the sixth, but by my count, the 24th state to adopt by statute a data security obligation. No private right of action, enforceable only by the attorney general. Right. Well, okay. So uh, if you're AWS cloud services, you have to worry that in 20 plus states, you could be attacked for failing to provide reasonable security practices because you wanted to charge for, let's say, logging. Well, the attorneys general have not been, in my opinion, very systematic in exercising the authorities they have under these laws. They tend to pile on the big right. cases. So an Equifax all 50 states plus the District of Columbia come in. But relatively few cases, New York State may be the most active, particularly in the financial services arena, but that's under a separate reg adopted there by the New York State Department of Financial Services. But these are tools in the toolkit that are there should a state attorney general be interested in pursuing them. All right. Well, I have to talk a little bit about Hachette versus Internet Archive because the the Internet Archive got its head handed to in litigation in, in the Southern District of New York in front of Judge Coulter, who, you know, it was a Clinton appointee. He's been around a while, smart guy. He just wrote just a trashing analysis of the arguments that the Internet Archive had made. The Internet Archive was saying, look, people give us books, real physical books. And if we were a library, we could, one, lend them out, as long as we didn't lend them out twice at the same time. And two, we ought to be able to do the same thing virtually. That is to say, if we digitize them, and as long as people who get the digital copy only have one copy and have to return it after a period of time. And until they return it, nobody else gets to see it. We're just being in cyberspace what a library is in real life. And and then during the pandemic, they said, oh, well, we're not going to have as many of those limitations because you know people are desperate for books. And they got rid of that policy just before they got sued. Their argument essentially is this is fair use. We're not making any money. We're a nonprofit. This is a non-commercial use. It is transformative in the sense that it enables access that people wouldn't otherwise have if they live in remote locations or have disabilities. And it does no harm to the publishers who already have library copies of their books all over the world and have learned to live with the consequences of that. And he said, oh, just give me a break. Basically said, if I read it right, this business about fair use, when you say it's non-commercial use, unless the publisher comes in and says, yeah, we never could have made money off of any of those things. I'm going to assume you're making money off it. And indeed, you've got a little thing on your website that says, if you like this book and you want to buy a physical copy, here's the place to go to buy a physical copy. There it is, commercial use. It was really brutal. 
I was surprised because I have some sympathy for the Internet Archive, which has been around a long time, and it really is pretty non-commercial and non-profit in motivation. But this is potentially bankrupting and certainly puts an end to the library features and maybe to other kinds of fair use arguments, which are taking it on the chin these days as people who have copyright begin to extract value, as they used to say in hog butchering in Chicago, from everything except the squeal is monetized. So everything but the reader's squeal is going to be monetized in cyberspace, and therefore there's no room for for fair use. So interesting. We'll see if they do as well on appeal. The copyright holders do as well. But very bad decision for the Internet Archive and a bad decision for Internet hippies everywhere. Okay, quick hits, just a couple. Wired had an article, which I had scooped a week or two ago, talking about GSA lying about the fact that login.gov supposedly met NIST standards and then saying, uh, oh, were we lying? No, what we meant was equity. Equity is what protects us. You've got a racist face recognition algorithm. And until you fix that, we're never going to be compliant with the uh, NIST standards. Equity is now the last refuge of scoundrels. It used to be patriotism, but the GSA is justifying its lying by saying that it was really standing up for equity, so it's a good guy. guy named David Zvenyak was the guy who made many of the decisions. He has now left. He used to run 18F. Then he ran the Digital Transformation Unit. I think there's going to be a hearing, if you're following this, there'll be a hearing This week in the House, in which, not surprisingly, House Republicans say, when did you stop lying about your services? So bad news for GSA and really couldn't have happened to a better bunch of people. And then finally, I just wanted to mark what appears to be the imminent passing of Toshiba, which has been sold to Japan Industrial Partners for a knockdown price of $15 billion. Everybody thinks it's, a, it's, it's pennies on the dollar compared to what Toshiba used to be. And I remember Toshiba in its prime. It was combination Westinghouse and General Electric for Japan after Westinghouse and General Electric had started to slide. It was Japan Inc. to everybody. And, you know, if you look at, if you follow CFIUS, the second round of CFIUS statutes and improvements all was driven by fear of companies like Toshiba, which became a poster child for, oh, the Japanese don't care about our national security. They're selling our secrets to the Russians uh, and they're going to get together and bankrupt American industry. And that view sort of hit its stride in the early 90s, just as the air was starting to go out of Japan. And Toshiba, which invented flash memory, for God's sake, and and some, some great devices that I remember from the 90s. They had this cute little personal computer, great company with great stuff, just totally wiped out by the internet and by standard software. They used to have their own operating system because, of course, you couldn't rely on Western operating systems. That got pancaked by the uh, by Windows. It's a, a lesson for everybody that things that seem obviously true and likely to last forever won't. And, you know, it's sad to see Toshiba go in some ways and uh, kind of a relief to know that the companies that we're now afraid of could be there in 15 years. Okay, that's it. Thus ends the homily for the day. Jim, Mark, thanks for joining us. If our listeners have questions, they can send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave us a review at which we might read on the air. This has been episode 450 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. See previous discussion, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs>